You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Thank everybody for coming out today on this uh, Thursday afternoon. Seattle is back into Seattle form after we, we had a very sunny summer with the drought. Um, but to welcome our, our representative from the UK, we've we've gone back to British weather. British weather. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but actually, frankly, I'm quite happy to see it after a sunny summer. So um, today's event, as you all know, is responding to Ukraine, UK-EU pro-Crimea policy towards Russia, and we are joined by uh, Mr. David Riley um, from the British Embassy. Um, I would just want to introduce myself very quickly. My name is Philip Lyon. I'm the managing director of the Russia, of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies in Jackson School for International Studies here at the University of Washington. Uh, we are a national resource center prom which promotes interdisciplinary study of our extremely long named region, Russia, Eastern Europe, and Central Asia. Um, and as you can see, we run a series of talks on foreign affairs, history, economics, and even urban planning. We're uh, welcoming somebody to speak on socialist and modernist urban planning in um, late December or early December. Um, there are two people who uh, should be thanked for making today's event possible. The first is Mr. Robin Twyman, who is Counsel for Business and Government Affairs at the UK office, Government Office in Seattle. Um, he also just explained he is the UK office, uh, <laughs> <laughs> government office in Seattle, so he's clearly an overworked uh, gentleman. And um, Val Petrova, who is our outreach coordinator um, at the Ellison Center, um, who has been uh, working tirelessly to make this event happen. Um, so uh, now I'd just like to introduce our speaker. Mr. David Riley is first secretary for foreign and security policy at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C., where he oversees the coordination of policy between the U.S. and U.K. on European and African issues, including Russia, the former Soviet Union, and NATO and the European neighborhood and, uh, of course, That's Africa. Things, yeah. uh, David's career in the Foreign Office has centered on European and multilateral issues. Uh, prior to serving in Washington, he was Chief of Staff to consecutive ministers for Europe and the Labor and Coalition governments before taking on responsibility for the UK's policy towards Kosovo and Serbia. Uh, David's overseas tours have included, apparently they've been quite... Very difficult. Quite posh, actually. Yeah. Uh, they have included uh, the, US the UK missions, I'm sorry, to the United Nations in Geneva and New York, where he was responsible for trade policy and human rights, respectively. Now is in Washington, D.C., as I mentioned, at the British Embassy. And we should be especially thankful to have him here because this is at least his second event of the day. Um, and he has one more tomorrow. So um, we want to thank you very much and offer him a warm welcome. Thank you. Uh, well, good afternoon. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for hosting me. Um, uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I was asked to speak uh, originally for an hour, I think, and then it was we negotiated that down to 30 minutes. My wife says I would have no problem with that, but I think I might. So I prepared some notes. Apologies if I look down occasionally. I'll try to engage as much as I can. And I think we've allowed for about an hour after my comments for, for Q&A. Um, uh, now, as, as, uh, as, as was clear from my uh, resume, I hope, I'm, not a po I'm a policy practitioner rather than a sort of scholar of Russian history and culture. Um, so I won't be mapping out the Ukraine crisis back to historical reference points, uh, the rise of Kievan Rus or the rule of Catherine the Great, 
or the collapse of the Tsarist regime. Um, I, prefer, I leave that to uh, greater people than me in these great corridors. Um, instead, what I hope to do today is offer the UK's government's perspective on the Ukraine crisis and, or the Russia crisis, perhaps, if you might want to describe it, and its implications uh, for, um, for our, the UK's and the EU's, and we would argue the West's future relationship with Russia. Um, so first of all, I will discuss, and if I get my slides in the wrong order, shout at me, because some of them might be inappropriate for the comments I make, but we'll see. Um, uh, uh, first, I'm going to discuss the decisions made by Viktor Yanukovych in 2013 and 2014 uh, that led to the tragic scenes of February 2014 and his uh, eventual departure, what you might describe as the internal crisis in Ukraine. Um, second, uh, Russia's role in annexing Crimea and manufacturing a conflict in eastern Ukraine that continues today. Um, Putin's tactics and uh, his motivation for, for, for using that policy, the Russia crisis. Um, then I want to set out the West's response to the events in Ukraine across three pillars, uh, diplomacy, support for Ukraine, and imposing costs on Russia. And lastly, I'll try to set out the implication for the UK's and the EU's policy uh, to Russia in the, in the longer term. Uh, and if I can start first with an anecdote. Now, um, I must confess that, uh, as you heard from my resume, I have uh, found, I've had some difficult posts in New York and Geneva and Washington. I haven't actually lived in Moscow or Kiev, um, but I've had the pleasure of traveling to both in my role as um, private secretary to the FCO's Minister for Europe. Um, now, for fans of the wonderful British comedy, Yes, Minister, that makes me Geoffrey. Um, for those who haven't had that pleasure, and I would really encourage you to have that pleasure, because it's a fine uh, British comedy, uh, the role of private secretary, um, described to me as one of my predecessors, is a combination of policy advisor, journalist, neg negotiator, navigator, bag carrier, relationship manager, occupational therapist, translator, recruitment consultant, and even bodyguard when you're trying to steer your minister away from an embarrassing handshake in the corridors of, of New York. On one of those trips, um, as is always the case, the British ambassador hosted a dinner for my minister and me and members of Ukrainian civil society and academia. Um, one course in, my minister, when asked to pose a question, asked um, his fellow diners, what do you think is the biggest single threat to Ukraine's future. And a voice from the end of the table said, um, Ukraine itself. Uh, now that might sound sort of flippant, given events of the last nearly two years, but there was a, an obvious logic to it. Because while Ukraine had freed itself of the shackles of Soviet rule, only two years, I think, after Poland, the past those two countries had taken since couldn't be more different. Um, you know, Poland's GDP um, is now three times the size of Ukraine's, and it's now a leading member of the EU and of NATO. Um, Ukraine's his recent history has been far from that. Um, our guests sort of put this down to uh, the mistakes of successive Ukrainian governments and of presidents and prime ministers, who, he argued, chose short-term populist policy decisions over strategic decisions about the future of Ukraine. A government who drove Ukraine's energy sector and military into the ground. Um, he spoke of elected leaders who, rather than deliver for ordinary Ukrainians, stole from them instead. And in many ways, for me, for my government, there's no better example of that than uh, Viktor Yanukovych. 
by some estimates, uh, by the time Yanukovych fled Ukraine. Uh, the man himself. By, sometimes by, the, by the time he fled Ukraine, he had stolen some $10 billion from Ukraine's, Ukraine, Ukraine's people. And it's with him and his decisions I want to start. In the summer and fall of 2013, Ukraine was preparing to sign an association agreement with the European Union. This agreement would have given Ukraine uh, preferential trade access into the European Union across large sectors of our economy, as well as technical and financial support from the European Union uh, for a swathe of reforms that would have put Ukraine on a, on a path towards greater stability, greater prosperity and greater security. And Yanukovych, as presidents before him, spent much of, this, much of his three years as president preparing Ukraine for that possibility. Um, in the summer and fall of 2013, he and his government uh, pushed through, a, pushed through a, a range of new laws aimed at, aimed at meeting the EU's conditionality, ready for a uh, Eastern Partnership Summit in November that year, where he was due to sign um, the association agreement with the EU. Um, the debate in London then was, you know, was he prepared to release Ulya Tymoshenko, which was seen as, in many ways, a sort of symbolic, almost totemic conditionality, uh, not whether he would be uh, was walking backwards from the agreement. But I think, as is clear now, Russia intervened very late in the day. Um, Yanukovych was essentially summoned to, to Moscow for two long meetings with Vladimir Putin. And what was said in those meetings, we will never know. We can all guess what was said uh, and what pressure was exerted on Putin. Um, but the outcome was on 21st of November, just one week before he was due to sign the association agreement in Vilnius, Yanukovych changed his mind, suspended preparations for the deal, called for a summit between the EU, Ukraine and Russia, and called for a consolidation of Ukraine's trade relationship with the Eurasian Economic Union. That, for us, was Yanukovych's first mistake. Now, the question in London at the time, to give you a sense of our own internal political debate, uh, as I'm sure was the case in many capitals across Europe, was how to respond. Did we shrug our shoulders? Did we pull out all the stops to get Yanukovych to change his mind? Um, now, notwithstanding the fact that in foreign policy, at least, there is very rarely sort of one clear EU succinct point of view, I think I would summarise the EU's response as, well, that is regrettable, but it happened. Perhaps it was force majeure, but we move, for we move forward and we hope a future Ukrainian government might take a different view. It is their decision after all. Um, that was our view, but as we know, only days later, it was Ukraine's youth who rose up and protested about the change of policy. On 24th of November, thousands of young Ukrainians took to Independence Square, or the Maidan as it is now more colloquially known, waving Ukrainian and EU flags. Their numbers swelled when it was clear that the association agreement would not be signed in Vilnius. In the early morning of 1st December, Yanukovych made his second mistake, ordering the Burkut Specialist Police to clear the Maidan. They did so using batons, stun grenades and tear gas. But rather than suppress these young protesters, the act has prompted older generations veterans, nationalists, to join Ukraine's children on the Maidan. And what had originated at anger over Yanukovych's refusal to sign the association agreement became a more general defence of the European values it, re it represented, uh, good governance, democracy and rule of law. More protests and violence followed. The Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev sought to purchase or buy an end to the protests with a cheap gas offer and $15 billion loan. It didn't work, as we all know now. 
January 16th, Yanukovych's third mistake. His party rushed through a suite of oppressive laws that placed sweeping restrictions and imposed harsh punishments on those who sought to protest against the government. The manner in which the laws were adopted went against, against all accepted democratic principles and procedures. And some of the laws themselves were extraordinary. Um, there was one example, some of you may, may know, there was a group of protesters called the Auto Maidan. Uh, their sort of, their um, MO was to drive protesters and their cars to the residences and the homes of Ukrainian government ministers and officials um, to honk their horns and to have protests. So in response, the Ukrainian parliament outlawed convoys of more than five vehicles. Um, but as a, as a DC resident, I now see some attraction into that approach. Um, <laughs> that's my only joke, by the way, of the, of the speech. Uh, um, clashes continued. Uh, some started by protesters, and I think we have to accept this. Um, the Ukrainian police were not always the instigators of violence and some of the scenes we saw in Kiev. Uh, so some were started by the protesters, others started by heavy-handed police. Um, attempts were made at reconciliation. Uh, amnesties were negotiated. Uh, coalition governments were proposed. The buildings were vacated. But over the 48 hours of February 18th to 20th, Yanukovych made his fourth and most tragic mistake. Amid reports that Ukraine's parliament had stalled when considering the restoration of Ukraine's 2004 constitution, which would have given more powers to the prime minister and to, and to the parliament, uh, thousands of protesters clashed with the police. And as I said, neither side can claim innocence. But what is clear to my government and to many in Europe is that Yanukovych, or someone close to him, ordered snipers to shoot at the protesters, many of them unarmed. And I think many of you may, re may remember the, some of the footage, the TV footage at the time, of you know, four or five uh, Ukrainian protesters huddled behind a piece of wood or cardboard for moving forward to try and gain, gain territory or move towards the police and just being shot down with single bullets to their foreheads. Um, nearly 90 people, oh, sorry, that's the that's whole point of inappropriate pictures, there we go. Um, uh, nearly, nearly 90 people were killed in what was Ukrainians' uh, bloodiest 48 hours since World War II. Um, the French, German and Polish foreign ministers hastily made their way to Kiev. Uh, to, to Ukraine and Kiev, uh, presiding over all-night talks between Yanukovych and the three leaders of the opposition parties. Uh, an agreement was signed that inter alia called for a unity government, a return to the 2004 constitution and early elections. Now whether that agreement would have been acceptable to the Maidan, uh, we may never know. We doubt it given the initial reaction to, uh, to, um, uh, uh, to Mr Yatsenyuk um, when he presented it to the crowds. Uh, but that soon became moot because on 21st of February, uh, just hours after signing the agreement, Yanukovych fled. Uh, first to be seen in eastern Ukraine, then to be seen in Moscow. Now, I think Russia would argue that that's, uh, what followed was unconstitutional, um, that somehow this was a, uh, a coup from the streets uh, and an illegal toppling of the, of the Ukrainian regime. Um, now, what happened with the vote in the Ukrainian parliament that removed the president of his powers may not have ticked all constitutional boxes in Ukraine, but the constitution had provisions for a president dying, uh, had, a, had, a, had, had provisions for, for president uh, resigning, didn't have provisions for a president fleeing to Moscow. Um, so this was a unique situation perhaps, and so we, we would ch challenge the Russian arguments. Um, so that, well, that took us through to uh, 21st, 22nd of February. Um, what followed was uh, the Russia crisis in, in, our, in our mind. Um, 
little green men, as we now know, turned up in Crimea, um, armed with Russian weapons, driving Russian armoured vehicles, wearing unmarked Russian combat fatigues. And in less than two weeks, those little green men took over Crimea. On March 16, according to the uh, Crimean Electoral Commission, 80% of Crimeans uh, participated in the referendum, with 95.7% voting for reunification of Crimea with Russia, a percentage that even Vladimir Putin would be proud of in Moscow. Um, the UK, US and our Western partners clearly had very real doubts about the legitimacy of that election and its results, but uh, Putin nonetheless moved swiftly to annex Crimea. Now, one can look back and say we should have expected Putin to be more aggressive at that time uh, when, than we'd expected him to be. But I think we and others were judging Putin on uh, the trajectory he had taken to date over the, la over the last couple of decades. And there were wise and experienced people, far more brilliant than me, I don't think, who predicted that uh, Putin would annex Crimea, who thought that perhaps he would negotiate some sort of special status for Crimea or that he might try to negotiate a new agreement for the Russian basing in Sevastopol. Uh, but I think many of us, by our own admission, were taken by surprise by his annexation of Crimea. But within weeks, those same little green men appeared in eastern Ukraine, with protesters seizing government buildings in Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk. Within months, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk republics declared independence after, again, deeply flawed referendums. And they were supported not only politically by Russia, but through the provision of Russian tanks, armoured vehicles and missile systems. And as we now know, the same missile, missile systems that were used to shoot down Malaysia Airlines Flight MH17, resulting in the tragic death of 298 innocent civilians, including 10 British nationals. Uh, the, Crimea, the Crimea pattern was repeating itself. Yet by August 2014, actually I wanted to show you it. This is one of my favourite Twitter exchanges. Um, where, uh, around Crimea and, uh, and Russian action in the East. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure whether you can read it. So it says on the top, it's a tweet from the Canadian mission to, to NATO in Brussels. It says, geography can be tough. Here's a guide for Russian soldiers who kept getting lost and accidentally entering Ukraine. And it has Russia in red and not Russia in blue. And then we have the obvious Russian response of uh, teaching Canada about contemporary geography which not only has Crimea as part of Russia, but as you might see down here, um, Abkhazia and South Ossetia are also different colours to Georgia. Uh, so very much the, uh, the Russian map. Um, now, by August 2014, Ukraine, the UK, and, and my American hosts um, thought an end might be in sight because uh, Petro Poroshenko had been elected in free and fair elections. Uh, the Ukrainian armed forces were making gains against the Russian-backed separatists. Uh, but the introduction of what we estimate to be up to 15,000 regular Russian troops uh, turned the tide against Ukraine, and decisively so, and quickly. Uh, there is one terrible story of Ukrainian troops negotiating a retreat from the, uh, from the separatists and Russian uh, soldiers, and as they walked away, they were shelled, and 70 Russian, uh, Ukrainian soldiers died in about 25 seconds. Um, it, was, it was a decisive and uh, extraordinary intervention by the Russian regular, regular, regular army. And on the back of that, on, on 5th of September, Ukraine, Russia and the OSCE signed the original Minsk agreement. And Poroshenko, by his own admission, believed he had no other option. The alternatives for him at that time included the most likely scenario of Russia crushing the Ukrainian armed forces and him losing parts of Ukraine permanently. Peace talks beyond, throughout the autumn and into the beginning of 2015 failed. 
Um, Ukraine troops were overrun by the Russian-backed rebels that the long fought over Donetsk airport for so long a torn and battered symbol of the conflict between Ukraine and the separatists. And Alexander Sakharenko declared his forces would once again go on the offensive. Uh, so again we found ourselves in the Normandy format, uh, Angela Merkel, Francois Hollande, Petr Poroshenko and Putin around the table in Minsk in February. Poroshenko, his country on, his, on, his, on its knees, his armed forces exhausted and much diminished, agreed a further deal to end the fighting in Ukraine. The deal that's now the Minsk package of agreements and a process that continues to this day. Uh, and I'm happy to discuss some of the latest developments in the Q&A following the meeting in Paris on, on Friday. Now, what were the Russian motives for, uh, for this? Um, I think whether or not you believe the Minsk process will succeed depends ultimately on what you believe to be Russia's motivation for intervening in Ukraine. Everyone has their theories, just, just as all, all admit that only Putin really knows what's on his mind. Uh, there are even debates within my own system in London. And for what it's worth, here is my view. Um, ultimately, Putin wants to retain Ukraine in Russia's sphere of influence. And why? I think there are a number of reasons. Um, firstly, Putin shares the view widely held in Russian society that Ukraine is merely an extension of Russia itself. At the 2008 summit, he voices disdain for Ukraine, telling uh, US President Bush, um, don't you understand, George, Ukraine is not even a nation. What is Ukraine? Part of its territory is Eastern Europe, and part, a considerable part, was given by us, meaning Russia. Um, second, uh, for Putin, Ukraine is a st strategic buffer between Russia on the one hand and the EU and NATO on the other. Essential for a man who retains to this day an irrational fear, in our view, an irrational fear that NATO's ultimate goal is the destruction of the Russian state. Thirdly, Ukraine is central to Putin's vision of uh, a Eurasian Union, um, which, is, which was intended to be the regional platform on which Russia would stand as the great power equal of US and China, a real status symbol uh, for him. But without Ukraine, the Eurasian Union has, li has little meaning for Putin and frankly little significance uh, when uh, Russia imposed retaliatory sanctions against the EU, uh, Belarus and Kazakhstan didn't. Uh, so even those members of the Eurasian Union are not wholly committed to it. Uh, so we would argue that without Ukraine as a member, without Ukraine's industrial sector, the Eurasian Union is nothing more than a pet project for Putin. Uh, the future of Ukraine was also deemed to be essential for the security of, Putin, of the Putin regime. Um, if the Maidan was to be successful in placing Ukraine irreversibly on the path towards Euro-Atlantic integration, then in, in Putin's mind, who was to prevent the same scenario playing out in Russia? This was 43 million people on Russia's doorstep, who Russia considers brothers and sisters as part of one Russia, who were embracing a different philosophy and a different democratic model to Putinism. And Putin saw that as a direct threat to his own regime. Now, his objectives had both minimalist and maximalist dimensions. The minimalist, to deny Ukraine to the West, uh, so thwart Ukraine's integration with the EU and NATO. And in concrete terms, this meant destroying the EU-Ukraine association agreement and preventing the possibility that Ukraine would ever climb towards NATO membership. The maximalist dimension of Putin's objective which was not annexation of Ukraine in our mind, but it was to, over the long term, bring about the eventual integration of Ukraine into the Eurasian Union. Um, although I don't think he expects that will happen anytime soon. The insurgency in Eastern Ukraine was and remains the means by which Putin intends to achieve his minimalist and maximalist objectives. Put simply, his intention is to batter Ukraine into submission. 
forcing it to deal directly with the Russian-backed separatist regimes in the East to negotiate a new constitutional arrangement that would federalise the country and give the eastern regions a veto over Ukraine's foreign policy orientation. More generally, he hopes to enfeeble the authorities in Kiev and, Putin thinks, leave them defenceless in the face of further Russian pressure. But as I said earlier on, Putin did not have it all his own way. In the face of unexpected Ukrainian resistance, Putin had to make a series of tactical adjustments during the last year. The insurgency uh, failed to attract much popular support and has ended up being concentrated in a much smaller part of Ukraine than I think the Russian leadership and Putin himself had expected. Uh, moreover, as I said earlier on, last summer the Ukrainian forces struck back at the insurgents with some success, forcing the Russian army to intervene with massive force. And although this inflicted a crushing defeat on the Ukrainians, you may remember the high number of casualties among Russian servicemen uh, who returned home in coffins. Um, the, uh, the, the, an, an NGO there called the Mothers of Russian Soldiers, I can't remember the name of it now, uh, began to sort of campaign and try to build awareness of the Russians who were dying. Volunteers in Putin's eye, active servicemen, we know. Uh, and Putin's response, typically, was to threaten to take away the pensions of these mothers and grandmothers and sisters uh, and to, uh, to crack down on them rather than to support them. And I think evidence has suggested since that rather than allow these young Russian boys and brothers and sons to come back to Russia, uh, Putin supported the um, building of crematoriums in eastern Ukraine to dispose of the bodies in different ways. Uh, we, we, Poroshenko, as I said, was brought back to the negotiating table and we, know, we have the Minsk agreements. So that was my attempt at defining the objectives and tactics during Russia's engagement in Ukraine. Um, Will Pomerantz tomorrow may have a different view, I think. We can argue, uh, till the cows come home, uh, Putin's motivation. Uh, only he knows, ultimately. Um, but now I want to look at the, at the response, uh, the Western response, both in the short term and the long term. Uh, but to do so, and to beg your patience for a little longer, I want to put my comments against the backdrop of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, the last 20 years. Because since 1991, the UK, the US and our partners have sort of hoped to bind Russia into the international system and to deliver a convergence of values. We brought Russia into the WTO, the G8, G20, the OSCE. We created cooperation councils within the EU uh, and NATO. And our aim was to bring Russia closer towards us, both in values and in sharing an outlook of the world. Uh, but Ukraine has showed us that we failed in that strategy, or at least that the assumptions on which it was based were flawed, uh, essentially a, a sense that Putin wanted that, uh, that outcome, that future. But actually, Ukraine is just the most egregious example of what has been a continuing divergence of Russia from the, from the EU, both in terms of rhetoric and in actions. Um, Putin has not become what we hoped or thought he would. Uh, he is a Russian, devout Russian nationalist who wants to restore Russian greatness after what he sees is the humiliation under his predecessors. Um, he has said publicly, of course, that uh, the collapse of the Soviet, former Soviet Union was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century, uh, conveniently forgetting the values that drove that collapse, um, rule of law and pluralistic democracy. Uh, he, sees the, he sees the restoration of greatness in Russia uh, not in addressing the structural weaknesses that, that, excuse me, that Russia now uh, faces. <coughs> um, embracing democracy, liberalism, and putting Russia on a path towards prosperity. Rather, he sees greatness as uh, Russian subjugation of its neighbours, 
of increasing centralised and authoritarian rule under the clamping down of civil society. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, the human rights situation in Russia has become far worse under Putin's um, second term. Freedom of assembly, um, freedom of speech, uh, civil society activism has been seen as a threat to Russia rather than the opportunity as that, that we see it as. And Ukraine has shown, uh, sorry, Russia has shown, Ukraine has shown us uh, that Russia doesn't believe in the core values that we believe of around sovereignty of national states and the sanctity of international borders. Um, so our attempts to form a strategic partnership failed. Uh, rather than a strategic partner, Putin has become a strategic adversary of the EU and the West. Uh, so my government is therefore seeking to forge a new relationship with, with Russia, and we hope the EU will follow suit, one that manages some of our fundamental differences uh, but also at the same time allows for engagement. And what does this mean in practice? Now in the near future our focus has to be continued to be on Ukraine, uh, where we're working across and I've not been that's enough, have I? That's there, that's process. There we go. Um, uh, across three pillars. So firstly diplomacy. Because my government believes there can be no military solution to uh, events in Ukraine. Uh, the problem is when you have no checks on Vladimir Putin, you therefore have no balance. Uh, you have in him a man who will happily take a zero-sum or a lose-lose game. And so if you get into a game of escalation with Putin, our view is that it's a game you may risk losing. Um, that's, why we, that's why we welcome, diplomacy is why we welcome and support the efforts of Chancellor Merkel and President Hollande to deliver a sustainable outcome in, in, the, uh, in Ukraine. So we, need to, we want to see the, Min the Minsk uh, package of agreements fully implemented. That means a sustainable and monitored ceasefire. It means withdrawal of weaponry. It means local elections in uh, eastern Ukraine. It means a new uh, constitutional settlement for eastern, eastern Ukraine uh, through decentralization of powers. and also means the return of the Ukraine-Russian border to Ukrainian control. The second strand of our, of our approach is support for Ukraine because the scale of uh, the reform challenge in Ukraine is extraordinary, it is immense. Uh, the economy is under severe strain. Uh, a legacy of endemic corruption has eroded trust uh, in the public institutions. And the conflict, of course, in eastern Ukraine continues to drain government time and resources. Uh, but despite these challenges, progress is being made. And actually, I think uh, William can offer a sort of more up-to-date view of this, because he was in Ukraine about two or three weeks ago attending this thing called the YES Conference, where I think he came away somewhat encouraged by uh, what he heard and saw. Um, but Ukraine is making progress. It's successfully ad adhered to uh, IMF conditionality. It's taken positive steps on anti-corruption and it's put in place tough energy sector reforms. That's okay. Um, uh, and that UK has worked with our partners to make it easier for Ukraine to trade with the EU, uh, bringing forward tariff reductions and providing 11 billion of loans and support through EU institutions. Uh, we've also uh, helping the Ukrainian military by sending advisory and short-term training teams to build the capacity and resilience of the Ukrainian armed forces in uh, special ops, in logistics, in urban warfare, in uh, uh, sort of uh, medical support in theatre. And we're also providing them with non-lethal military equipment, uh, laptops, body armour, night vision goggles uh, and um, uh, medical uh, equipment. So that's the second pillar of our of our approach to the Ukraine crisis. The third focuses on increasing the costs of Russia's actions <coughs> in Ukraine. So since Russia's annexing of Crimea, we have been gradually ratcheting up a suite of uh, measures against uh, Russia, 
to the point that we now have the largest sanctions regime ever in terms of the, the sanctioned economy, Russia. It's been a graduated approach, at first targeting uh, those companies who expropriated uh, Crimean companies, of those individuals who supported the annexation, then individuals and companies driving the instability in eastern Ukraine, and eventually uh, the energy, arms and finance sectors, when it was clear that Russia was continuing to foment instability in the east. And I want to try and sort of preempt here some of the challenges I've had this morning and other times about the effectiveness of, 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 of these sanctions, because many people point out that Russia is still in Ukraine and is unlikely to sort of cede Crimea back to Ukraine in the in the near future. But that's to misunderstand, in my view, the, the, the purpose of sanctions. They're not a silver bullet, nor are they meant to be, because sanctions rarely solve problems themselves. Um, they, are, they, are, they support policy goals rather than being a policy themselves. Uh, they seek to recalibrate and deter. Uh, they, to, they seek to, to stigmatise, but they won't solve things overnight. And as I said, they can only support a policy rather than be a policy in themselves. But actually, by exacerbating negative trends in the Russian economy, uh, driven by oil prices and Putin's refusal to, uh, to sort of take forward structural reforms. Um, sanctions have forced Putin to look again at the position, positions he takes. Uh, we have to look at the role that sanctions played in the context of Putin's decisions. Um, uh, would he have satisfied himself with Donetsk if sanctions hadn't been placed? Would he have come to the table and supported ceasefires and negotiations with uh, Ukraine and France and Germany? Um, uh, would Ukraine have had the time and space in which it can take forward the much-needed reforms that will form the foundation of its, of its future? Uh, also, think of the alternative. If we hadn't signalled strength to Russia, if we hadn't put in place sanctions, what more he could have done, not only in Ukraine, but in, in his neighbourhood. Uh, and, you know, my Prime Minister has been clear, as has President Obama, that you know, we will look at lifting these sanctions uh, once Ukraine is resolved in a satisfactory behaviour, in a satisfactory manner, sorry. Um, but until then, it's the view of my government that they should stay in place and that they can be added to if Russian behaviour uh, is not satisfactory. And there is a good deal of work that my government takes forward, my colleagues in London with their counterparts here and, and in the EU, preparing a suite of further sanctions should they be required. So that's the short-term response. Uh, deliver diplomatic settlements in Ukraine, impose costs on Russia until a, until a solution is arrived at, and support Ukraine in its efforts to drive forward a challenging set of reforms. But what about the longer-term Western response and posture towards Russia? As I said earlier, uh, we need a new relationship. That's still based on working with Russia, which remains an important partner for us on global security issues, the economy and business links. But we also need to be very clear about what we want to achieve and how. Uh, we no longer believe that being generous and cooperating with Russia will sort of see Putin respond with similar levels of generosity. Uh, we need to be much clearer in our objectives. Um, firstly, in our view, we need to do a better job of building people-to-people -people links. We don't have a problem with the Russian people, uh, but, with the, but with the decisions of their government. Um, we want to build links with Ru and support Russian civil society, and that is, that is an immense challenge and is becoming more and more difficult. Um, uh, Putin is, and his government are closing the space in which we can see civil society activism uh, we are, the British Council a few years ago was uh, harassed, its staff attacked uh, and detained. Um, the UK can no longer fund directly uh, a large number of civil society organisations in Moscow because of the unfavourable law that Putin has pushed through in recent times. So space in which we can actually engage civil society is, is massively reduced. Um, so we're looking to engage um, students, uh, make it easier for Russians to travel into the UK, uh, 
to talk to Russian academics and Russian business people who have fled Russia. Uh, and we look to try and sort of have innovative and creative ways of engaging society more in the future. Um, secondly, we have to defend ourselves and our allies against Russian coercion and aggression. Um, first and foremost, it's about protecting our own networks and, net networks and assets and critical infrastructure. And we, like the US, have been the subject of a number of Russian cyber attacks in, in, the rec in recent years. Um, that's also about implementing the uh, outcomes of the 2014 uh, NATO summit in Wales, uh, a summit that we were very honoured to host. And probably the most significant NATO summit in the last 20 years in terms of the challenges it faced and in terms of the, uh, the substance that was achieved. And the UK is playing a large part in, uh, in ensuring that those NATO, uh, that NATO stands by its commitments. So we have um, this year announced that we will continue to meet the NATO requirement of spending 2% of GDP on defence issues through the rest of this decade. Uh, we're one of the leading contributors to NATO's deterrence efforts or reassurance efforts in Eastern Europe. Uh, we fly typhoons in the uh, Baltic air policing mission. Um, we participate in training exercises. We will lead what's called the, uh, uh, the very, one of these awkward uh, NATO acronyms, the Very High Readiness Joint Task Force. It's like a rapid response, rapid response spearhead force. We will lead, we'll lead that. And today, my, uh, our Minister of Defence announced that we would send a further 100 uh, soldiers to the Baltics to help with training and reassurance on a sort of semi-permanent basis. So while strengthening our defences and those of our allies, while protecting ourselves from uh, sort of the new hybrid warfare, as it's described, Russian hybrid warfare, we also have to work on building our resilience and that of our allies in the face of malign Russian influence. Um, to do this, we have to focus on eliminating this, the sort of the cancer of corruption and oligarchism. I can say that this morning, so I'm very proud of that. Oligarchism in Eastern, in Eastern Europe. Uh, we have to strengthen democratic institutions. Uh, we have to diversify energy supplies and we need to respond better to Russia's huge propaganda effort. Um, so that's, I guess, the sort of the main strands of our, of our, of our approach. Um, we need to protect our allies and ourselves. We need to ensure partners are more resilient against Russian tactics. We need to support Russian civil society and we need to engage Russia in a hard-headed way when doing so supports our broader strategic priorities. Iran is the obvious example for us where we work very closely with uh, Russia as the, in the um, E3 plus 3 or P5 plus 1, depending on which form of algebra you want to pursue. Uh, but also in the Arctic, we cooperate on counter-terrorism uh, and we do retain economic and business links with Russia. So what I hope I've done today is set out uh, why the Ukraine crisis was originally of Ukraine's making through the decisions of uh, Yanukovych, albeit with, uh, with uh, external interference from Russia. Um, I've explored Russian, Russia's motives for creating a prolonged conflict in uh, eastern Ukraine, and I've set out the West's response, both in terms of our short-term response to the Ukraine-slash-Russia crisis and our longer-term efforts to establish a less ambiguous, hard-headed response to a resurgent, revanchist Russia under Vladimir Putin. And I'm very happy to take your questions. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to say, actually, you, you reminded me of the, of the, the importance of that summit, of the NATO summit in Wales. Mm -hmm. And um, we've talked a lot about how, uh, we've talked a lot about, about, about the, 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 the Russia crisis and how it's impacted Ukraine. I was wondering if you could speak to the Russia crisis and how that has impacted, how that has affected NATO as a body and its activities and aspirations.
Well, it's, I mean, in many ways, sort of one of Putin's mistakes in uh, annexing Crimea and uh, invading, if you want a better phrase, eastern Ukraine, is that he has, uh, he has united Europe and NATO in a way that we haven't seen in, in recent history. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, being in, um, uh, in Washington, hearing that my PM had, host, had agreed to host the NATO summit and thinking, what on earth are we going to deliver? Uh, because at that point in time, we, we, you know, when you think that NATO is about collective security, about managing counterterrorism, collective defense, we, did, we, didn't, we didn't conceive of a situation where Russia was going to sort of tear up the borders in, 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 in Europe. So we thought about NATO being an exporter of security, of cooperating with the ASEAN countries, uh, of even cooperating with Brazil. And of course, uh, the actions of November through to February 2014 um, changed that debate and really united uh, NATO and the EU around a sort of single goal. has inspired a number of um, European countries to increase their defence spending, although many have to do a much better job, frankly. has sort of focused NATO on the sort of challenges it faces. And it's, you know, that's everything from the risk of, uh, you know, Rush a repeat of sort of Russian hybrid warfare being seen in, in Narva in Eastern, in Eastern Estonia, uh, or in you know, or in other areas where Latvia, where there's a 30% sort of Russian population, through to uh, Russia sending its bombers to flirt with British airspace. I mean, we've had somewhere in the region of 100 plus Russian bombers uh, come and flirt with our airspace over the last over the last year or so. So there is there is a huge scope for misunderstanding and miscalculation. And in many ways, what NATO is trying to do now is almost trying to dust off some of the mechanisms and views it had during the Cold War, because I think we've become we sort of risked, we, risked, we sort of, we've forgotten about that threat. You know, we, don't, we didn't have the, the systems in place for, in, for avoiding crisis management when we saw something going on. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it, is, it has united NATO around, you know, uh, the cause of collective security. It has uh, united NATO in reassuring its eastern allies. Um, it has it uh, forced us to look again at sort of the risks that Russia represents to, to NATO, both in terms of, as I said, sort of, you know, an air disaster. Russian planes, when they're, in our, when they're near our airspace, they turn off their transponders, um, which is dangerous. And we've had, you know, one Russian, Russian jet came within uh, not very far of a, of a uh, I think, a northern European uh, passenger jet. Um, so I think it's, it is, you know, it's one of the mistakes. He's, Peter's made many mistakes. Uh, you know, he, before the Ukraine crisis, um, he had a, a state and a government in Ukraine with whom he could work, who were receptive to Russian trade and Russian influence. Um, uh, he had in Germany a public who actually were uh, quite sort of open to engagement with Russia, given the sort of the given given their history. He had a Europe who uh, was struggling struggling to define a coherent collective policy towards Russia because of the vastly different cultural and political and economic relationships we held with Russia. Uh, now he has 40 million Ukrainians who are committed to a uh, Western trajectory towards European and uh, uh, Euro-Atlantic integration. They're lost to Putin for some time. Uh, he has a German population, 60% of whom see Russia as a threat rather than as an opportunity. He has a EU who, despite all of their differences, uh, have united around, as I said, one of the largest sanctions regimes we've seen in Europe in recent history. Uh, so they're three of a number of mistakes that he has, he has made. Um, and one of which I said was to sort of unite NATO around a sort of collective cause, which we don't take for granted, I should say. On all those elements of European and NATO unity, something we have to continue to work at and not take for granted in the near future.
So here, could you, uh, well, I'll ask everybody to please keep their, their questions relatively short um, to, avoid, to avoid statements and um, respect the make a minister's time. Thank you. So is it one question with three parts then? Yeah. yeah okay. It's actually connected. <laughs> the three parts are this. So on May 9th, Xi Jinping in Moscow announced that the Eurasian Union and the New Silk Road and the land bridge were one. And this was re reestablished at the BRICS summit in Houston. So you have the entire um, issue of the role of China in supporting Russia. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 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 it's much more than just Ukraine. It's a, an entirely new system of economic agreement, development, infrastructure that have that is uh, this, which is trying to capture Europe and to a relationship of economic expansion and development. So that's that's the that's the first aspect of the question. The second aspect of the question relates to Kissinger's comments on Ukraine, which I'm sure you're all familiar. He said, you know, Ukraine. Should uh, I'm not saying exactly how he said it. Mm -hmm. He said Ukraine is neutral, should be neutral, and and the uh, um, and Putin has the upper hand. And he said this he said this before all this happened. And he said, what's wrong with Ukraine being neutral? Why does it have to go uh, over to NATO and over to the to the uh, uh, to the European Union? And now the third part of his question relates to the fact that. There's a sea change going on now in the Middle East, where forces are rallying to Russia, which is taking a decisive action against ISIS. We're seeing a shift in Israel towards Russia. We're seeing a shift in Turkey, which is a NATO member towards Russia. We've already seen a massive shift of Egypt towards Russia. Uh, all these things are happening in the context of the ineffectiveness of U NATO policy and U.S. policy in these constant wars uh, the taking out of Gaddafi, the, the Afghan situation, the Iraq situation, all of this. So I, I, uh, I don't think this is just a Ukrainian situation, and I would like you to address all of this. There you go. We have how long do we have left? We have like we have an hour left. That, that, that could be it for. Okay, so let's start with the Russia-China relationship, which I think and I, th I think people risk making more of that relationship than actually exists. I. Uh, let's remember that China abstained in the UN Security Council whenever we had decisions around around um, uh, Crimea and MH17. And you know that's not supporting the West, but let's look at the alliance that Russia and China have had in the Security Council for the last few years, where they have often been hand in glove in terms of their approach they took. So I'm not quite sure that sort of you know China's support for Russia is unconditional. Um, uh, China, I think, sees convenience in allying itself with Russia at the moment, um, in part because of the sort of the geopolitical struggle that's been playing out on the world stage over the last few years. And I was in uh, Geneva, as you said earlier on, uh, a few years ago, uh, spent nine days negotiating to try and deliver the Doha development agenda. And I think one of the reasons it failed is because we had this standoff. We had sort of, you know, the, the West and the BRICS countries going chest to chest. There was this geopolitical struggle that we see in UN Security Council reform. So I think China sees some advantage in allying itself with Russia while Russia is standing up to Western democracy, Western governments. Um, but let's remember that China uh, negotiated a deal with Russia on gas that did not support Russian interests. That uh, China is now, um, with its own sort of its own uh, slow, uh, slowering, uh, slowering, uh, the slowing down of its own economy, is now um, 
undermining deals with Russia. Um, uh, it's, you know, it's no longer investing in hydrocarbons and, uh, and natural resources. Um, so I, I think people make more of that relationship than exists. And the Eurasian Economic Union is, is a pet project for Russia. And without Ukraine, it is, uh, it is, you know, even the members of it now, Kazakhstan, Armenia and Belarus, are not sort of uh, not wholly committed. They, they, they oppose the political union that's, that's foreseen as part of the EU over the next few years. Uh, so I guess, I, I mean, I want to sort of downplay the whole Russia-China sort of new axis of power that's, that some people suggestors out there. Now, Henry Kissinger, I mean, who, who am I to sort of d disagree with Henry Kissinger, frankly, um, the, great, the great man, um, but who is he to tell a 43 million people what they should and shouldn't do? And one, one, of the one, of the, one of the reasons we oppose Russian behavior is because they have tried to impose a view against the, wills of, against the will of Ukraine's people. Um, so I don't, think it's for, I don't think it's for Russia, and same I don't, I don't think it's for the UK or for the US to tell Ukraine what it should and shouldn't do. It should respond to the will of its people. If its people decide that they want to be members of the EU or members of NATO, then like every other European country who aspires to join the EU or the NATO, they will have to meet the conditions that are necessary. Uh, they will have to meet the standards that are required and the conditions that are necessary, make the commitments that, that are necessary for, those, for joining those two institutions. What I would say is Ukraine at the moment should be focusing on the reforms that will deliver more stability and prosperity and not thinking about the longer term prospects. But as I said, you know, we in the UK absolutely respect a European country's desire. If it's a country is European, wants to join the EU or NATO and can meet the conditions, then we will support them. Uh, in the Middle East, um, I mean, you said, I think, I just quoted here, Russia's decisive move against ISIL. I think as of this morning, uh, Russia has now bombed Iran more than it has bombed ISIL because four of its cruise missiles have gone down in, on Iranian territory. Um, we debated this morning um, uh, Russians' motives, and I am pretty clear on what Russians' motives are, because uh, ISIS, uh, sorry, the, the anti-ISIS coalition that we're a member of, 60-odd other countries, have been uh, combating ISIS for a year. We have run 8,000 sorties against ISIS uh, in Iraq and in Syria. Vladimir Putin, Russia, could have joined that coalition at any point during the last 12 months. They didn't. They chose two weeks ago to join that. Why did they join that? Because they were in a position of weakness where they saw Assad, a fully paid up member of the Putin's club of autocrats, um, losing the conflict in Syria. Uh, so they have intervened to try and bolster Assad. They have been targeting the moderate opposition, um, not ISIS. I think as of this morning, we counted two or three attacks on ISIS out of the 40 or 60 odd that they have conducted in Syria. They're trying to make this a binary choice for the West between Assad and ISIS and say to us, which would you have uh, the West? Do you want ISIS or do you want Assad? So they are there to bolster him. Uh, there may be advantages to that. They have a seat at the table now, clearly, and that sort of that is Putin challenging the view that somehow he's isolated or is not part of the sort of the, the sort of the um, uh, the sort of the geopolitical A team. It may give them a bit of a foothold into uh, into the Middle East. Um, uh, but again, Putin has made mistakes. I mean, he has put himself into one side of a sectarian war and the wrong side of history because he is allied with the Assad government, Hezbollah and Iran. And he's fighting 80% of Syrian people. The Sunni population is 80%. He is, he has, you know, one of his allies in the EU uh, potentially was, was uh, Francois Hollande in terms of uh, looking to uh, dilute or remove sanctions. Uh, Hollande is the one person who cannot contemplate in Europe, he cannot contemplate Assad being part of it, Syria, Syria's future. Um, you know, I think I think Putin, in his sort of short-term, sort of tactical way, has potentially put Russia in a very, very difficult position. Now, you can argue, and will will, will tomorrow. So, so there are many other motives potentially 
for Russia being in, in Syria. But my view is he is there to, to bolster the Assad regime, to make sure that regi regime doesn't fall to moderate opposition, uh, and to ensure that we face a choice in the West of, do you want ISIS or do you want Assad? So. so um, if you were teaching a class in diplomacy <laughs> and um, your students were to pose this question to you, how should the West deal with Putin when he is actively, um, has an active policy of not telling the truth mm -hmm. um, in the face of just obvious evidence? I want to ask you, finish the question by just saying this, this book, which I just recently read, The Surreal Heart of the New Russia, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. So um, it seems to me that part of their operating strategy is just obfuscation. Mm -hmm. And so how does the West, from a diplomatic standpoint, uh, address that, counter that? How, are we, how do we become successful in that environment? Yeah, it, it is very difficult environments to operate in. Um, I think Timothy Snyder at Yale describes it as um, uh, Russian sort of neo-relativism. They are sort of, they, they are masterful at sort of shifting the debate. And I used this morning MH17 as an example because uh, very quickly it was clear that the missile had originated from separatist controlled territory. But within hours or days perhaps as the sort of Russian machine panicked, uh, all of a sudden Russia Today and Russian CB agencies were saying, well, hold on, this was, this was, we think was a CIA. Or actually we saw some Ukrainian jets were in the airspace at, at that time. Uh, now, we reject that out of hand. What it does, it shifts the debates. It puts more scenarios out there. It's this sort of this Russian sort of neo-relativism that they've created very, very well over the last few years. And it's very difficult, as I said earlier on, when there is no checks on an individual, there's no balance. Uh, Putin has centered power around himself and sort of three or four people that he trusts. Uh, it's very difficult to get into a sort of information war with someone who has no qualms about lying, uh, has no responsibility. Uh, we have to do a much better job of it, I think, is, is the answer. You know, we have to counter Russian propaganda. Uh, the BBC has just uh, started a sort of Russian, uh, Russian language uh, TV service, similar to Russia Today, to try and sort of counter some of the propaganda. Um, you know, we are trying to have a year of culture this year where the British Council will do the year of English language and literature in Russia, uh, because uh, you know, to learn the English language, we think you have to sort of read English books and English papers and visit English websites. It's a chance to try and sort of offer an alternative reality to the one that Putin uh, espouses and, public and puts around. But it's, I don't want to it's a very, very difficult challenge. Uh, you know, when someone can lie the way he does, you know, what do you do about it? Uh, as I said, the biggest challenge is trying to penetrate Russian society because uh, Angela Stent, who is you know Angela Stent? Angela Stent is a professor Georgetown. at uh, Georgetown. It's a brilliant woman. Um, and I think one of her biggest frustrations over the last couple of years is she used to do, uh, go, to tr go to Moscow and teach uh, young people there. Uh, she used to do sort of virtual classes using over, over the internet. And I think she was hopeful at one point that somehow the young, young Russians would sort of push for and aspire to a different and alternative future. But she says they haven't. Because of the Russian propaganda machine, they also see uh, the US as Satan and the UK as little Satan. Uh, you know, they also believe that somehow the US is trying to um, drive regime change in, in Russia. So it's you know, under Putin, and we may deal with Putin for the next 15 years, uh, we face a real struggle. And I think you know, we have to use all the levers we can to try and drive an alternative future. Uh, we have to adjust the way we tra trade with Russia. We have to end the reliance on Russian energy in Europe. Uh, we have to engage civil society where we, where we can. 
uh, we have to try and sort of root out Russian agencies, not only in Eastern Europe, but also in the UK and elsewhere, and uh, in a root out uh, oligarchism. We have to, you know, in the UK, we have to look hard at the flow of Russian money into our, into our economy. Um, so there's any number of ways we're going to have to try to begin to address our relationship, and we have, we, have, we have to be prepared for that to happen over the next 10 to 15 years, not just a change in three or four years. Because many of the ways, one of the, cha one of the things that I worry about, and I'm not sure people in my system would necessarily agree with this, um, is that Putin, in sort of taking the decisions he has in Ukraine and arguably in Syria as well, he has sort of prodded and woken up an even greater nationalist sentiment in, in Russia. And if he were to step back from Ukraine now, I mean, what's, the, what's, what's behind him? Are we, do we risk an even more autocratic national, nationalist sort of political movement, political leadership in, in Russia? Uh, which is why I sort of, you know, I have my, I don't accept the sort of the, the status today as being the, the daily reality in Ukraine. I think we have to see yet what Putin's decisions are in Ukraine. I don't necessarily believe we're out of out of the woods yet. No, I'm, I'm saying I think the, 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 I'm saying the climate that Putin has. I mean, we do have to engage Putin. I mean, Putin is uh, he is he is the president of a nuclear power, a, mem a permanent member of the UN Security Council, uh, a member of the OSCE. He has a, he's investing two hundred uh, billion dollars into his into his military. Of course, we have to engage him, but we have to adjust the way in which we engage him, and we have to recognise that he is taking Russia in a very very uh, uh, worrying direction. Um, so I'm not saying we have to engage him and bet on him because of the alternatives. I'm just trying to say that you know, he's created a culture of climate in which you know, there, is a, there is a very worrying nationalist, imperialist tendency that is, that is increasingly evident. I'll avoid the temptation. I mean, it's, you know, he, it's, I, 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 don't, I can't tell you sort of who I'm, I guess I was trying to what illustrate is the small circle that exists around him. Um, it's not Lavrov, for instance. It's not, it's not the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. It's not the defense minister, Shoigu. It is the people who work immediately with Putin and around him. <laughs> not today. Um, Chris Jones, Dr. Jones. Um, from the standpoint of the UK, NATO, and the European Union, um, how does this relate to the uh, agreements uh, signed in Helsinki in 1975 about uh, borders? When I was born, by the way, 1975. So that's the year I was born. So just to put it in the context of my how much I know and I've been involved in. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Um, borders are inviolable, but the Helsinki Agreement made, uh, accommodated uh, the unification of Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, separation of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania uh, from uh, the USSR and their independence mm -hmm. and, 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 and so forth. Are you arguing that Putin is violating the uh, Helsinki standards? I mean, it, it, you, you made all these statements and nope. I, 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 all these bad things. But is it just because we don't like them? Or no, no, he is. He is. Is, 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 is there a European framework? Uh, certain frontiers uh, in Europe and also address the question of internal frontiers, the breakup of Yugoslavia mm -hmm. was, was handled uh, 
Uh, no, I mean, he's, he's torn up more, more pages of the rules book than I can probably list here today. I mean, he has violated uh, the Helsinki Accords, he has violated his commitments under the Vienna document, um, he has violated the UN Charter, um, you know, it's any number of international treaties and standards uh, and values that we have been espousing over the last you know, 40 years. Commitments that he has signed up to willingly and his government signed up to willingly, he has violated all of those, so absolutely. Um, but it's, that's not going to telling him that's not going to make Putin change his mind or his approach. You know, he's, done it, he's done it knowingly and willingly. What did we tell to ourselves? Ab no, absolutely. And I think you know, w there is uh, the German Foreign Minister, uh, Steinmeier, Walter Steinmeier, uh, last year, I believe, argued that we had to, we had to look again and, sort of, uh, and try to create or negotiate a new uh, European security architecture. Um, and I think we... Uh, I'm not sure we necessarily share that sentiment. Because what we have to do is get Russia to respect and enforce the current security arrangements, not create not create new ones that somehow bind Russia that somehow bind Russia into it. But I'm, I'm just wondering, is that just something we make up on the spot, or or, or is that reference to a, a series of, uh, of leaving, for instance, the Budapest Memorandum? Which we're a signatory of, yep, absolutely. Um, uh, and we actually, we, we're prepared to engage on the basis of the, the Budapest Memorandum, and we've tried to host meetings with Ukraine and Russia and the US and, uh, and, and the UK, which Russia has refused to engage in. But I think it's, it's the sanctions package, our approach to Russia, one of the pillars I've set out, are a response to Russian behavior. And that behavior is uh, the annexation of uh, Crimea when we think that you know, borders are inviolable. Um, it, it, is, uh, it is his uh, rejection of Western democratic uh, norms and values. Uh, it's not something we just talk about and say, well, you know, he's, just done, he's done it. The sanctions regime is a response to that. Uh, and we have to do a better job of holding Russia to account. In the WTO, you know, the, 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 uh, the sanctions he has, the retaliatory sanctions he has imposed against Europe uh, do not uh, abide by his, uh, his commitments under the uh, WTO um, uh, agreements, and so the European Commission is uh, is taking him through dispute courts in the WTO. Uh, you know, we try to hold them to account in the UN Security Council. Uh, we have done on um, uh, the Srebrenica anniversary, which um, uh, the Russians vetoed. Uh, we, we tried to on the MH17 investigation and tribunal, which the Russians vetoed again. Uh, so Russia is, is, as I said, is diverging from the West in terms of its rhetoric and its values and its support for international, you know, long-held and respected international treaties. Uh, sanctions are a part of our response to that. Uh, but certainly we're not going to go and try and create new rules just because Russia has violated the old rules. What we have to do is better enforce the existing rules. So, y yes, yes, there is opposition. Um, I think we, we saw that in response to the um, uh, killing of... Um, thank you very much. Um, uh, and I think there is anecdotal evidence that there are um, oligarchs and wealthy Russians who have their doubts and concerns about both the decisions that Putin has taken and the trajectory in which he is taking the Russian state. Um, but again, he has created an environment. Uh, he has clamped down on civil society and activism so much that you know, we may hear this anecdotally in private meetings with us, uh, but it's very rare that you'll see these people challenging Putin himself. Um, you know, he, his, 
when he was prime when he was prime minister in 2011, we had the protests amongst the middle class in in, in Moscow. I think that scared Putin uh, immensely, and I think he he has focused his uh, attention since on the sort of the lower classes and you know the industrial workers and away from the middle class. And he has he or his allies have shown themselves ready to take the ultimate step in uh, killing um, human rights activists and opposing uh, members of the opposition. Uh, now, there is, there is the inkling of hope in there. Uh, with ne the, the killing of Boris Nemtsov, we saw the opposition try to unite rather than be disparate, uh, and that's probably going to have to be the case. Um, but what do you do when, sort of, when Putin finds you a million dollars or kicks you out of the country or imprisons you, uh, who, you know, when, his, when his police torture you? Uh, it's a very difficult environment in which we can see a genuine opposition begin to, to thrive. Uh, what we have to do is sort of is continue to support civil society in the hope that one day there will be an opportunity, a window will open in which they can begin to sort of take a genuine political platform and oppose openly um, the government, as you would face, as you would see in any other sort of uh, Western democratic capital. Mm -hmm. um, but what lessons do you take away from uh, Putin's involvement in Crimea and, and, uh, and Ukraine? And are there some lessons that are applicable or, or crossover I was discussing this yesterday with, with William. We had a sat next to on the plane uh, on, on the five and a half hour flight out here. We were discussing it yesterday. Um, yeah, Will Pomeran. Will Pomeran, sorry, yes, he's speaking here tomorrow. Speaking, speaking here tomorrow. He's speaking here tomorrow. Sorry, I've mentioned him a few times, and yeah, he's speaking here tomorrow, I think, isn't he? Um, uh, I mean, I, I, try, I try to avoid sort of um, drawing similarities between, between Ukraine and, and Syria, if I can. I think there's an argument that somehow um, Putin is, is wanting to sort of uh, to give up on Ukraine, that somehow his population have tired of Ukraine, and Syria is about him deflecting interest and attention on to Syria so he can make concessions on Ukraine. I think that sort of miscalculates sort of Russia's, uh, Ukraine's place in sort of the, in Russian mentality. I think, you know, my sense is there is already growing disquiet in Russia about the Russian intervention outside of the former Soviet Union, that somehow they're going to, this is like Afghanistan 2.0 for, for Russia. Um, I mean, the, the, some of the similarities we can draw are around, um, you know, Russian volunteers who are on their way to Syria. Uh, who probably are actually serving members of the uh, Ukrainian army. And indeed, I think there was an anecdote that uh, some of them have gone not particularly willingly to Syria, where they've had to sort of, you know, sign, uh, they've had to have signed orders given to them. So there's one similarity there. Um, he is, you know, he's there on the face of it, on the invitation of uh, Bashar, Bashar Assad, uh, whereas he certainly wasn't invited into, into Ukraine, as we know. Um, but he's not looking to annex part of Syria. So I didn't mean, I, I sort of, I... Instinctively, you want to try and draw similarities and parallels between Ukraine and, and Syria. Uh, I, I, I guess I would say I, I, I struggle to see some of, some of those, to be honest. I guess what I was trying to aim for is, is, is there a correlation in a sense of this, this kind of Russian nationalism that we saw expressed in Ukraine is also being expressed towards Syria in terms of Russia uh, you know, taking a part in Iraq in, in the Middle East, uh, uh, Russia Mm -hmm. 
I guess there is in, in Putin seeing tactical opportunities. Um, I mean, I think I know I've always it's always alleged here that so the, you know that the U.S. withdrawal from Europe. I don't think they ever withdrew from Europe really, but the withdrawal sort of gave Putin an opportunity, a season opportunity. Um, but I think it's I mean the one parallel I see is that he, is that Putin is Putin's uh, tendency to take a sort of instinctive tactical decision rather than thinking about the longer term implications of it. And as I said, I mean I think I think he may personally. And I don't know whether we have time for this to happen, but I think he may come to regret his actions in, in Syria. Uh, as I said, I think he did it because he feared the toppling of Assad and his regime, regime and regime change is something that Putin has an irrational fear of because he thinks it's going to happen to him or to his close allies. Um, I don't think it's about sort of creating a, a sort of broader strategic foothold in the Middle East. I think he's had an opportunity to do that for a few years, you know, in Egypt with his military relationship with uh, with the with the Egyptian government uh, and elsewhere um, I'm not sure I mean I think it's it's you know tactically I see similarities uh, opportunism I see I see similarities I think I agree with you there uh, but I wouldn't want to sort of make more of it I don't think it's something that Putin's been planning for you know in many ways he's the, his presence in Syria uh, has been uh, you know, three years ago was similar to what it is now but it's been reducing significantly since then and as, as I said earlier on, we've been active in Syria trying to uh, combat ISIS for the last year, and he's never shown an interest in joining that coalition. Uh, so I think this is, this is part of a great strategy to uh, you know, put the Russia back into a strong foothold in the Middle East. I think it was an opportunist tactical decision that he took uh, at the beginning of August. Um, I just actually just while you're here, it's, uh, it's just really not statements, just questions. Right, just Thank in terms you. of uh, internal politics to the UK, if you don't mind, uh, the recent election of Corbyn, mm -hmm. the head of the Labour Party, um, and especially concerning what he called for around the Glass-Steagall banking regulations. I don't know if you know that, but sort of the separation of commercial banking and mm -hmm. investment banking. And I guess just to tie it in, you know, Putin made the point that we were forced with the sanctions to uh, we used to have to use petrodollars to go buy on the international markets manufacturing goods, and well, I guess we'll just develop them ourselves mm -hmm. in terms of an internal economy. And it does seem to me that the Eurasian Economic Union, you may try to dismiss it, or the Silk Road Initiative, the merger of that, or even this BRICS dynamic, it's, it's, it, to me it seems they're calling the fraud of the Western financial system. They're looking at the quadrillions of dollars of derivatives in the city mm -hmm. of London and Wall Street and saying, <laughs> good luck with that one, you know. But it, it, I'm just curious, given uh, Corbyn saying that, you know, he, he wants to uh, move on this Glass-Steagall banking standard, if, if Wall Street and London go for their inevitable collapse because under the weight of these quadrillions of dollars of derivatives, wouldn't you find it a, a better way out to have uh, Europe and especially the UK orient towards this Eurasian development perspective of real physical economic growth versus just uh, smoke and mirrors and the derivatives? So um, no, because I would argue that the European economy is far stronger than the Russian economy. It's not sustainable. I mean, if you're if you're a if you're a, a large international investor, do you want to invest in uh, the uh, thriving dynamic financial sector in London, or do you want to inv uh, invest in Russia? Uh, where you have a president who takes short-term tactical decisions to the detriment of his country, uh, who is driving down his economy. Um, so I, would, I guess I would reject the premise that somehow that the Western, the British financial sector is going to collapse. Um, uh, in many ways, the, the, the London financial market is, is thriving. Um, 
Uh, I won't. I won't. Uh, I won't accept the invitation to comment on Jeremy Corbyn. I'm a civil servant. I serve the government of the day, and it would not be appropriate for me to talk about um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn. But I think I would. Uh, I guess I would. I would. I would, I would challenge uh, the premise of it. And on you know, glass. I'm not. A, I'm, a, I'm a foreign policy expert, not a financial expert. I might look to Robin as my sort of commercial, uh, as our commercial guy here, if he wants to comment on it. But I think it's. I think I don't necessarily accept the premise of the question, to be honest. Yeah, I'd be happy to sort of give an addendum answer to that. Is this going to pick up on that? Give me two. We can make sure it doesn't. No, I don't mind if it does. That's fine. So um, I think on. I think it's important when you look at the U.S. and the U.K. economies. Yes, financial services are an important part, but they're not the biggest part. You know, financial services in the UK, London is the world's leading financial services centre, but financial services only accounts for, well, services completely, only accounts for about 12% of our economy. You know, UK has got the world's second largest aerospace sector. You know, 17% of, uh, of our economy is aerospace. Um, it employs at $40 billion uh, uh, worth of production a year, employing uh, so I think it's about 40,000 workers, you know, 1,500 companies. We've got aerospace. We're the largest exporter of, of diesel engines in the world. We've got Rolls-Royce. You've got life sciences. You've got clean tech. So financial services, yes, important. We're very proud of financial services and, and the contribution it makes to the economy, uh, the, the way oils the wheels of, of commerce. Uh, and and you know, Wall, Wall Street will be proud of, 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 of their reputation for the same thing. But I, I, I wouldn't believe that our economies depend wholly on financial services. It's important that we've got a diverse economy um, and, and I think that we need to remember that. Um, it, on Jeremy Corbyn, just, just one sort of um, point you need to sort of bear in mind that he is the leader of the opposition who was elected by quite a small proportion of the UK public, I only Labour Party members um, and we are still five years away from the next election. So I think, yeah, we want to see what, what all the politicians say, but we, we do serve the government of the day in the UK. And, um, and I think we'll, we'll focus on what Mr Cameron says for right now. <laughs> Thank you. UK government office in general. I wanted to just, uh, Dr Jones um, brought up the Helsinki final act, mm -hmm. and um, we had an earlier speaker talking about neutrality. I wanted to talk about Finland um, and Finlandization. Mm -hmm. um, Finland, uh, Finlandization sort of represented a, a, a neutrality, right, between um, between the NATO bloc and the Soviet Union during the Cold War, um, and uh, some people, well, and but now we have a situation where we have important voices in Finland actually calling for joining NATO. Absolutely, um, which is an interesting development. I was hoping you could speak maybe to that um, and how we got there, and then I was also curious to know if if you do hear talk of Finlandizing. Ukraine um, in the halls of the, the foreign office mm -hmm. or, or in the European Union. So is, is Finlandization something that's discussed or is this um, so, an old idea? Uh, no, so I mean, so look, any, any good uh, um, governments and sort of Ministry of Foreign Affairs, when they are looking at policies, will look at all the options open to them, the advantages and disadvantages of those, the risks attached to those. Um, so absolutely, Finlandization has been mentioned, I think, in the corridors of the Foreign Office, as I'm sure it has in the corridors of the Department of State in Washington. Um, now, I, uh, I can't sort of put myself into the minds of 
finish nationals, um, I can see why a policy of neutrality would certainly be to their advantage when you share a border with, uh, with Russia to your, to your, to your east. Um, but equally, I could see why Russia's actions in Ukraine and in Georgia would make you incredibly nervous about the prospects for Russia, Russia doing something silly uh, to, to Finland. And yet there is absolutely a very live debate in both Finland and in Sweden now about their position towards NATO. The talk of NATO membership, I think, is, is uh, more live, more active than in, well, ever, frankly. Um, I think there is a sense that neither will move without the other. I think there is a sort of the sense that they want to sort of move collectively towards, towards, uh, towards NATO. But the debate is, is definitely happening. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, in many ways, it would be an absolute v a value to NATO. It's, it's a sovereign choice for them to make. Uh, Sweden and Finland are still very, very valuable uh, partners of NATO in terms of um, their operational contribution over, uh, to our sort of uh, operations overseas, in terms of their political contribution as sort of partners of the alliance. Um, but it's, uh, it, it feels to me a sort of a natural response to Putin's, Putin's ac actions in, in, in Ukraine. Um,